E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Michael Schmelzer on the show of Monte Bernardi in Tuscany. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Levy. Thank you. You make wine in Panzano now. How did you get there? Where'd you, uh, where'd you grow up? I was born in Italy, in Evrea, uh, Piedmont area. Uh, then as a family, we moved to France and I had a brother born there. I should say my oldest sister was born in the States before that. And uh, about age of three or four, we moved to Michigan and settled there for my formative years. So up until about age 12, uh, 13. What was that like? It was not necessarily memorable as a place to live, but uh, I remember it being very important to me in the sense of my passion for food started there. Okay. And how did that start to manifest? uh, Honestly, I can remember being like seven, eight years old and building up uh, like a fireplace on the driveway and building wood fire and cooking bacon for my neighbors. Uh, uh, the, that Who were apparently age. not Jewish. Well, they were actually largely Jewish. I don't know if their their family would have, uh, their parents would have approved or not. But uh, I also remember my brother, uh, probably he's two years younger than me, probably around when I was nine, uh, my mother asked him if he wanted eggs, and uh, he said yes. But can Michael cook them? So, <laughs> I, I guess it kind of made me aware that I had this kind of uh, passion for for food. And uh, I also remember passing out flyers uh, for a local bakery just so that I could kind of get free lessons on how to bake bread. So, it was a a, a good uh, starting point for me. And I uh, started cooking from cookbooks, and then kind of just kept getting positive feedback and. Uh, then uh, when I was about 12 or 13, we moved to Wiesbaden, Germany. Uh, my father's job brought us there. Uh, my sister had graduated high school and went off to CU Boulder. And uh, I went to an international high school there. And then I decided that I wanted to take the cooking thing farther. So I went to, uh, started to work uh, in the kitchens of our favorite restaurants. And I happened to be Italian. So I started at the very bottom, washing dishes, prep cooking, peeling, then working, plating and things like that. And then slowly got to do a little bit more every time. And uh, I finished high school there and I kind of wanted to figure out where I should go. So 
I visited my sister at CU Boulder and decided that that's where I would go for university. So I went out there and uh, started a degree in business administration and marketing, still kind of trying to figure out my path, I guess. And uh, so I decided to explore the cooking side a bit more. And I went in the summer holidays to Le Cordon Bleu in France. Uh, Were your parents into cooking or wine? Or? My my mother, I used to joke with her that her cooking skills inspired me to cook, <laughs> which I feel kind of bad about, but she laughed. She loved that. Um, but uh, we definitely uh, were allowed to drink and enjoy wine at an early age. Uh, my father would get exposed to really great wines at his business dinners and wines that he really enjoyed. He would buy lots of it. And so we would drink like the same Sancerre for like two years and we would buy it. Well, would, it's a good way to learn about a wine though. Yeah, absolutely. It was really, you know, I, I don't, we never talked about the wines we were enjoying, but I got a lot of exposure that I, I look back to today as being very important to me. I um, also remember taking tasting a wine that they had drank the night before and being like, this wine tastes like cork. Like, what is going on with this wine? How did you guys drink this wine? Now I realize that that wine was corked. But uh, anyways. Um, That's actually my biggest fear, <laughs> that I'll go into a tasting and try a wine, and then the guy behind me will be like, I can't believe Levy didn't pick up that this was yeah, corked. You know? like, uh, yeah, that, I, that's like uh, when you're a cook and you're, you like dream uh, of plating over and over and over the same thing. It's one of those stress dreams that you get. And I totally... Uh, I totally know what you mean. And uh, I've been to tastings and, uh, you know, the, the producer is two thirds through his bottle and, and then you taste the wine and you're like, oh God, that's cork. Should I tell him? Should I not tell him? It's always yeah. a really uh, it's, it's, awkward situation. It's super awkward. Um, so, but anyway, I, I did the Le Cordon Bleu thing every summer and I worked my way through the whole cuisine and pastry degree to grand diploma. And, I knew before I even completed it that I didn't want to go that route. In fact, I think cooking in kitchens was killing my passion for wanting to cook. But fortunately, it was at Le Cordon Bleu that I took an introductory sommelier class uh, with a classic French psalm. It was like first thing he said in the morning was uh, the first You're wrong. rule. Is, <laughs> yeah, well, the, he was like, don't brush your teeth in the morning. Uh, very important. And looked I've like lost he, several girlfriends following <laughs> that rule. <Yeah. laughs> looked like he didn't brush his teeth at night also, which uh, maybe he should have uh, uh, maybe thought about uh, a little bit better. But um, there I really loved the way he explained things. I mean, he started teaching us about fruit spectrums and how the temperature affected the kind of the expression of that flavor from like, you know, cranberry, cherry, raspberry, plum, prune. That just resonated to me very strongly. The soil types, he said, by the end of this class, and this was a very basic introductory class, he said, not only will you be able to tell me that it comes from Bordeaux, but you'll be able to tell me which soil in Bordeaux, you know, which area, which satellite. And uh, I find I was, the fr classic French guys much more soil focused than the American sommeliers. And yeah, actually, they they kill on that. Yeah. Like well, compared to the American sommeliers. Yeah, that I'm not sure. I, I think I find just the level of interest now is so much higher than it was five years ago, seven years ago, which is amazing. I, I love I love this. The, the era of, that we're making wine, you know, it's it's really encouraging and, and the passion and, and the interest and in the different varieties and things like that, the exploration for everyone, for myself as well. So 
So I, uh, every weekend in that course, we would go to a different region in France and we would meet important wine producers. Uh, I wish I would remember better who they were. I remember Jackie Blow from the Loire. Well, he had a chef background too. Yeah, and he had that mustache that, you know, it's like like when they wear a handkerchief or something around their neck, the people, they're great at uh, making you remember them uh, no matter where you are. But uh, it was it was unbelievable experience. And looking back, I also think I had my, uh, I fell in, in love with wine during that experience. Uh, I remember particularly being at a restaurant in the Loire Valley with all the chef aspiring classmates and just getting a house Chinon and that I hadn't, I still don't know who the producer was, but I was just, just floored. You know, I had all this exposure to these great wines from my dad and the Pomars and, um, uh, and Bordeaux's and uh, top Italian reds. And I was just blown away with it. I was just like, I just enjoyed it so much. And I don't think I could express it a uh, why, but um, if I, if I had to now, I would just say that I fell in love with the deliciousness of that wine and, and it just made me want to, uh, to uh, keep going, I guess. So, so I finished the Le Cordon Bleu course and the University of Colorado Boulder at the same time and kind of trying to figure out if I should go into something in wine. And I was invited to a dinner in Gaioli at Riecine. And my father's friend through business had just started to buy into the, the business from the wonderful John Dunkley. And there at that dinner party, I met Sean O'Callaghan, which was uh, an English guy making wine in the heart of Chianti Classico. And I think it dawned on me, I mean, I know it did that moment that... Uh, I wanted to, I guess I didn't realize at that until that point that you could be a winemaker not growing up as in a family. And I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to really get into, I want to make it. And, you know, the uh, aspects of my food background made me think that, you know, there's, it would uh, be something that I would be good at. So months later, I was uh, looking at programs and, and uh, UC Davis was actually my first choice, but because I had a degree in business already, they wanted me to take like a year and a half to two years of sciences before I could apply to the program. And I was like, I don't want to be a doctor, you know, <laughs> I want to get working. So I consider just working uh, and not studying, but I just have the, I, I need to have the the theory knowledge, you know, I'm just that kind of person. I love to have that kind of that like the SOM class with the French guy, just need to have that, the, the, the details. And then you can forget that all when you make wine if you want to, but at least it gives you that confidence that you know what can happen, what won't happen. And it's kind of like so. being E.E. E. Cummings and at least knowing the rules that you're breaking as you're breaking them. Uh, that sounds like a good, uh, good comparison. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you signed the test in Cran, did they notice? Or? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I was lucky, actually. I went to, um, when, when I went to Australia, I ended up skipping a year because of my prereqs at Boulder. So, because um, you went I, to Adelaide for, for school. So, my, I went to my quote unquote second choice, which was supposed to be the second best English program, English speaking program in the world, Adelaide University, formerly Roseworthy. And to, you know, I look at it as the most, a fortunate accident in a sense that ever happened to me because it was just such an unbelievable experience um, from the people I met, the the program itself, uh, my wine experiences there. Uh, I really look at it as a special time. So, How did that all go down? 
I got there and started studying uh, and kind of getting the theory part. And then I started to search outside of what we were learning because we were learning a pretty um, industrial way of winemaking to be frank, you know, which is understandable. That's the most of what wine is produced. Uh, you know, it's kind of, I call it like the Coca-Cola wine, you know, it's got to look and taste the same year in, year out. And that's a big part of wine and it has to be made, let's say, uh, at least today. Uh, it's required in a sense because people look for that consistency. Uh, I knew already that I wanted to make wines that reflected the vintage and the place where they came from. I was a big fan of Waverly Root when I when I read uh, for food, and I I felt like I had to explore uh, different parts of that. So, so I think the first thing I remember getting into was biodynamics. There for the first time, I had no idea what biodynamics was. Buying organic produce, and once in a while, it would have this symbol of biodynamics on it, and I just thought it was another form of organics. And at a certain point, I started to convince myself that that biodynamic products were better. Um, like from the groceries that you're buying, not yeah, so much from the wines. From the groceries, yeah. In fact, I don't think it was very difficult to find biodynamic wine. Um, you had to do your research back then, I think, even though it's not so long ago, you know, 15 years ago, maybe 14 years ago. But the produce, like the eggs, you know, with the orange yolks and the egg whites that don't break when they hit the pan, you know, they stay solid. And orange juice that tasted like it had minerals in it and didn't just taste like orange flavor with acidity and, and sugar. So I felt like I had to learn more about biodynamics. And so I started reading it and started with, of course, Jolie's book and never laughed so hard in my life when I read that the first time. I think we were on, a, I was on a tour with a friend of mine who's a Vidi student and we were touring around Western Australia and I, I read passages as we were driving along and we were laughing so hard we were tearing because it just seemed so impossible and so crazy. So, but uh, I kept, going with it because I was convinced that it was it was sound and it, it had some you know something to it so I joined the biodynamic association Australia and I started learning more about biodynamics and what uh, I met um, some producers uh, who were making it in Australia uh, Julian Castagna of Castagna vineyards and Vanya Cullen of Cullen and and then I found out that a lot of French producers were making wines and farming biodynamically but just not really making it well known so so uh, that was really important thing I learned in Australia and I took that with me to Tuscany I also when I was in Australia I met amazing friends and I ran the Adelaide University Wine Club and met so many distributors and producers and you know kind of changed the way that the wine club was run and introduced like a discount card and got like 500 times more members than uh, than uh, the previous years because they would get a discount if they signed up and gave us our money so we had this huge wine budget because we had all these members and we we bought just tons of wines and went on field trips and all kinds of stuff it was amazing uh, we had so much fun doing that and that was our junior year and senior year uh, my best friend uh, Darren Burke and I uh, started our own uh, wine bar not we called it not-for-profit wine bar because all we did want to drink more and taste more. And um, we would just cover our costs and uh, basically, and we kind of did a Slover-esque kind of thing back then. We would 
limit six wines could be open, but you could pick any wine off the list as, as long as you had two glasses between your party or you could find someone else who would open that bottle with you. So, and some of the wines were pretty expensive. And so that was a pretty cool experience. And then, uh, uh part of my last year there, I, I had my experience of, uh, working in wineries. So I, my first was at a small family estate near the Hunter Valley, Maji, a low family wine company where it was very liberal and we could really do or try anything we wanted it was uh, and i met two amazing german producers who were there doing vintage with me who i'm still friends with today that that uh, uh we we just had such a great time and then then i went to grosset and mount horrocks in the clara valley and because that's like a husband and wife duo yeah it's a husband and wife duo and they have very different philosophies he's quite regimented and 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 uh this is Grosset. precise yeah jeffrey grosset uh very well respected riesling producer in the claire valley and i had met him through the wine club and that's how i ended up working vintage there and then his wife was more kind of i i guess um sensual and european and like to do more stems and different kinds of things uh but uh there i was just like pure cellarat you know like foot plunging uh, whole bunches in like eight degrees celsius cold rooms and washing out barrels and presses and tipping bins uh, with a forklift and, you know, just total dog and working 90 hour weeks and being paid for 45 hours. And, but I had a great group of friends up there working at different wineries in the zone and we, and we just had an unbelievable time. It was amazing. So, uh, uh, about the last two years there, roughly, um, the idea of a family winery came, um, how did that come about? The way I remember it is uh, my my parents uh, were thinking about retiring and they had lived, you know, roughly half of their lives together in Europe, in Germany. And I was born in Italy and my, my brother in France. And so they, they had lived the last six or nine years in Wiesbaden and they... Um, were thinking about retiring in the south of France. Uh, my sister was in Berlin working for Price Waterhouse. My brother was in California studying at UC Santa Barbara. And, you know, we're all spread out. I was in Australia. So my sister, I felt, uh, was the one who kind of said to my parents, that, Look, what do you think of retiring on a vineyard? And maybe Michael and I could make a business out of it. So that that's uh, kind of uh, where the idea came from. And so we started looking for properties from... Bordeaux, south of France, through Piedmont, Tuscany, and Umbria. And uh, so I guess before I even graduated, I kind of knew that that's where we were going, uh, which was a nice thing to have, because I certainly, when I started the program, I didn't ever think that was going to be on the cards. But uh, uh, so we started the search then, and it took us about two or three years. But uh, we ended up finding, again, through Sean O'Callaghan from Gaioli, uh, he immediately, when we said we were looking in Tuscany, he said, you got to see Montepinardi. Montepinardi is, this, you know, he's by far the place you would want to be. And Montepinardi had been on the market already for like five years or something. It was a kind of a bitter divorce and he didn't want to sell and she wanted to sell. And so we kind of came at the right time in the right place because we would have never been able to afford it really if it went for when it uh, came into the market. So uh, we saw lots of different places and I think everything was missing something until we found Montepinardi. You know, something had lifestyle, but it didn't have winemaking potential. Some so when we found Montepinardi, it had everything we all wanted. So it was pretty neat. And that's in Panzano. Yeah. Yeah. Montepinardi's in Panzano and Chianti. And 
Uh, we took over that estate in 2003, and it was five hectares and older vines. And we went, I guess we, we were definitely, Jennifer and I uh, run the business, my older sister and I, and we were very green uh, when we started and had you know, I think I spoke three Italian words when I moved there, like ciao and and so Arrivederci. And that counts as two. Arrivederci. And uh, I had to. I was the first one to move out there, and I had to oversee like construction. And I had an employee who only spoke Italian or French, so we kind of started with French. And uh, I had to start buying all the supplies and work in the vineyard and learn like everything about this property was is quite quite amazing uh, amount uh, f- to start with. And so, yeah, we just took it step by step, I guess, and started our process. But uh, So what did you find when you got there? I think when I arrived there, I knew I wanted to make a wine like Montevertine's Montevertine or La Bonche La Trame, but I had no idea how to get there, <laughs> uh, you know. And how would you sum up those two wines? I would sum those wines up as being uh, fresh and true to where they come from. They're, I think they're made similarly in style. Not a lot of crop reduction, larger oak aging, classic varieties. They have this freshness and elegance and purity that I was attracted to. And I just felt like they were great expressions from where they came from. So I don't think consciously I was trying to aim to make wines like them, but looking back in preparation to this interview, I started to think that uh, I think those two wines influenced me. And every time I learned something new on my road to making wine at Monte Bernardi, I was like, ah, that's why, you know, I like La Trame or, or Montevertine and, and, you know, things like our tendency in uh, as growers is to overselect, you know, to crop thin. And we're always saying, oh, you know, how many bunches per shoot do you have or something like that? Or, you know, I remove this bunch or that bunch. And, you know, my experience has been that uh, as I progress that um, when you overselect, you're almost selecting out uh, complexity, uh, diversity. You don't want every berry to be perfectly mature or to the same level. You're taking out maybe those lesser ripe berries that, prob- in my opinion, add to savoriness and to, to um, you know, then you get more of the different fruit spectrums like cranberry and cherry and raspberry, you know, or different levels of ripeness that uh, make the wine more complex. So I really felt like it's something, I guess, it's something that I learned from, uh, from my different experiences. So, for example, uh, when in 2006, Jennifer and I realized that we really had to increase our production, we started making Retro Marcha Cante Classico. And that started as basically purchased grapes and purchased a just after fermentation wine from Panzano producers that I really enjoyed their their grapes. And so you had purchased Monte Bernardi in 03. Yeah. And in 06, you realized you needed another revenue stream. Exactly. Uh, that, you know, you have the dream that 12,000 bottles you can make <laughs> really high quality and, and survive on. But uh, we're still trying to figure out what that real number is. But uh, uh, we, we started with Retro Marcha. We said we needed a lower price Chianti Classico, a higher volume, uh, you know, 
no compromises in our quality goals, but, you know, from younger vineyards. And so we started buying fruit as we planted new vineyards so that we could already start that growth and, and Retro Marcha would already be established. And one of the producers in particular, you know, the, the family has a long history of growing. Uh, the father is a true Contadino and being a true Contadino, he would never ever consider dropping a grape bunch or a wing or anything like that. And when we started buying from them in 2006 and we harped them with harvest, I remember being really stressed out and uh, being like, what, you know, I can't pick all these grapes. Some of them are, you know, half pink and, you know, they don't look ripe. And so I, I told my pickers that we, could, we have to skip over them and we'd come back and get them, you know, in a week or two. And I'd look up the row and the mother and the father uh, would be picking them and putting them into our buckets and our baskets. So, um, you know, I said, we, ha we have to, you know, let it go. And what I also realized, I mean, a few days later, I was like, Mike, this, you love this wine. It's not like they didn't pay us. They sorted it out when it was their wine. Um, uh, you love the, the genuine quality of, of this, this wine. So I kind of, uh, it made me realize that that kind of aspect that Montevitino is actually kind of famous for actually not dropping grapes either. And uh, you always, at first I was like, wow, you know, they make a wine like that and they don't even drop the grapes. What if they drop some grapes? But but I think it, in a way, it was a little bit of a secret in a sense, and maybe not even a conscious secret. And so that kind of helped me understand that experience by purchasing grapes from others, because we would have never done it if we didn't purchase grapes. We because a lot of the thinking is kind of, the, the thinking you hear is often the opposite yeah. over, say, the last 20 years or Exactly. Years. The quality-minded, you know, that ultimate goal of making the best wine you can make, you have all these preconceived ideas of what makes a great wine. And... I think like 90% of them I've debunked myself over these last 10, 12 years to myself, uh, you know, like handpicking in small bins and bringing them up and crushing them. You're crushing them. If they get crushed in the larger, uh, in a larger container before they actually get processed, I mean, what, I just, there are things like that. I just feel like, um, they sound good. And now they have these sorting tables that use suction cups to sort out these greener berries with like infrared eyes, let's say. And and to me, it just makes kind of monolithic one-dimensional lines. And it and, and just also emphasizes that that uh, thing that I learned through this family in Panzano. So. When I think of infrared eye, I tend to think of 2001, A Space Odyssey, and like <laughs> Hal's making wine, and it has it's the same... Kind of you know, it's diversity kind of, like of personality that he had, you know? Yeah, yeah. I guess that that's a, yeah, that's a nice way of thinking about it. I, you know, I probably 12 years ago, I probably been like, oh, that would be such a great machine to have. But, um, you know, now I leave my wings, my classic wings on my large bunches because our consistency in the vineyard is very uniform. Uh, I think we are really good at what we do in, a, in the vineyard, but um, I think that wing bunch serves a purpose. And nine times out of 10 now, I want to leave it there. I don't want to take it off. And, and that's to achieve better quality. And what about oak? Because I remember Monte Bernardi used to be kind of known for a, a flashier, oakier style under yeah. the old ownership. Yeah, the previous owner, I think he was quite, uh, you know, quite ahead of his time in a way for the area and but he did uh, tend to want to do the 
100% new oak or 50% new oak, depending on the vintage and all barrique. And I just felt it took a while for that to integrate into the wine. And I, I definitely wanted to have the wine be, uh, you know, when you think about how fast people drink wine these days, it's even more important in a way, I think, that you can taste the the labor that you've put into those grapes. You taste the grapes. And I go back to my food kind of background. If I make a stew and I put cinnamon or clove in it, I don't want it to be the dominant flavor. I want it to be so subtle that it's just like a hint in the background. And that's kind of what I feel like oak should be also. I want to taste, if you do a good job in a vineyard, fruit should be 95% of what you're tasting or, you know, fruit and terroir and things like that, but not something that you're at, in a sense, adding like oak. So I think of it often as like garlic. It's really easy to go overboard and have people respond to that, yeah. like sometimes positively as like, this has flavor. Yeah. I can taste the flavor of this red yeah. sauce, yeah. you know, but it's really just a lot of garlic. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I learned this from my wife, Claudia, actually, I, I put whole cloves and I remove it before the end. I don't, I, whereas I used to do the American kind of mince it and put it in and overload the heck out of it. And Mincing is usually the worst. Yeah. Like when you do it into cubes, that's, yeah. that's yeah, heavy duty. Really heavy duty. My father still does that for he makes like this 30 clove garlic shrimp pasta that says like blow you know you can smell for the next three days but um but yeah i i hopefully the french sommelier is not over for dinner because <laughs> the not brushing the teeth yeah. after the yeah. 30 cloves was a little rough yeah yeah and he had like a mustache and beard to boot so um he'd be carrying that around for a little while <laughs> so yeah. So um, another thing that I, I feel like I've learned over the time, um, you know, Canti Classico has been working on, and the area has been working on selecting new clones, and and the clones have produced bunches that are smaller and looser and easier to farm, less prone to disease, but they have a higher skin to juice ratio. They give you better color and structure, but I think you lose the classic Sangiovese flavor and taste that uh, you know that drew me to the area. And how would you describe that flavor and taste? I call it sweet and sour. Primarily, you get the hot day, and then you've got a really big drop in temperature at night, often 10, 12 degrees at night, especially where we are in the center. And so you're getting this kind of back and forth of the ripeness and the acidity that gives you this just unctuous, amazing quality that I think is unique to a very small set of wines. And and that's, to me, one of Chianti Classico's gifts, if it's unadulterated and unhidden, let's say. Sometimes I, I see old clones of Sangiovese referred to as Sangiovetto. Is that... It's a, yeah, it's kind of, uh, I think just um, colloquial names for those, uh, like Brunello and, uh, yeah, so San Giovetto, I think of, when I think of it, I think of like some producers around Monti and Gaioli. I think for me, the important thing was there's a negative image on the old clones that they were overly productive and, and the bunches are big and compact and then they have the wings, so they seem like they're quite, quite productive. But I think if you have a balanced canopy and, and, you know, you kind of know what your vines can ripen in the given season, there's no better Sangiovese than those old clones. So, And what about rootstock? Rootstock is also um, something that uh, I think is really changed in the last 20 some years. And I feel like, again, it's a little bit for ease of farming, 
a particular stock, 420A, was chosen for our area because it reduces labor costs. Um, it's it's very superficial root stock. It doesn't go very deep. So when you don't have rain, the vegetation's very limited. The bunches are smaller, the berries are smaller, so they're easier to manage with less labor. Whereas I've always chosen, for me, the more the, the rootstock that seems to make more sense there, which is 110 Richter, which is known to go very deep. And I always thought, if it's too vigorous, I can just have more cover crops or grass swords. But in reality, our soils are so poor and so rocky that uh, we actually still have um, lower vigor than sometimes I want. So I think what I... I feel fortunate that I made that decision because I feel like with younger vines, we're getting much, much better quality than we could have gotten if we had the the uh, 420As that stay so superficial and 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 some vintages cause overburning and when uh, they also have problem with water logging when you have too much rain. So they just seem like a really bad choice for our area, but something that maybe the agronomist pushed because it um, lowered the workload uh, for those farms that didn't want to put in the manual work in the vineyards. Sometimes when I think of Penzano as an area, I think of a little bit more sun than some of the other areas and a little lower elevation than some other areas. What is it like in reality? Yeah, the reality is it's actually quite high. I mean, there are parts of Castellina that are higher and parts of Rada, uh, a little bit of Gaioli, like where Riachene is, for example. But um, I'd say, you know, we're at... Our lowest vineyards are 300 meters, roughly, and our highest that we farm are 400 meters. And then we have the Fiasco San Joe Sangiovese that comes from 500 meters in Panzano. So, but average, I think 360 to 440 is pretty classic for Panzano. It's it's quite high, but it is, you know, it gets a lot of sun. That's it, the Concodoro. It's the famous Concodoro in Panzano. And it gets quite a bit of sun. And we have, to my left of the vineyard, we have directly parallel to us is Castello di Rampola. And in between us is Fontodi. And, and, uh, and then behind them is La Massa and Villa Cafaggio and you know it's and you've got Vecchiteria Fili, Vecchiteria di Montefili on the very one end and and us on the very other end and just a wide range of vineyards and altitudes just in Panzano but uh, I would say they're not so low. Um, so when you say Concodoro do you mean it's kind of a sun trap? Yeah they kind of uh, it's used it was called the Concodoro because when the wheat was near harvest, um, it would look like a valley of gold. And the areas that were kind of less steep, uh, I think, were more, uh, more had a lot more grain, but um, also just the past history. You know, what people don't realize is, um, you know, until the 60s, we didn't have specialized vineyards. We had the mixed plantings. We had wider rows with fruit trees, vines and olive trees in the rows and in between they would grow the grains and that was because it was the sharecropping era where the people who lived there didn't own the property that they lived on and the landowner would get 49% of of everything that was raised and they had everything they had you know lots of different grains for breads pastas feeding the animals they had chickpeas they had uh, all kinds of vegetables and then they had 
goats, uh, pigs, sheep, uh, uh, basically everything to be self-sufficient. Uh, quite an amazing time. And when that era, when that was that era was um, abolished, let's say it was deemed like a form of slavery, fair, uh, rightly so. Um, those landowners who had often 13 types of Monte Bernardis within their portfolio couldn't afford to hire the people that worked there essentially for free. A lot of the properties got abandoned or bought by Italians from other parts of Italy or foreigners from outside of Italy. Because who, when I think of Tuscany, that's what I think of yeah, quite often. That's what most people think of, Chianti Shire and things like that. And, you know, what? unfortunately what happened is the people, the people who the next generation of the people who worked the land didn't want to work it because they saw how tough it was for their family and they left and they had es escaped with ideas of doing different things, I think. And then the, the newer uh, agricultural people, wherever they came from, didn't have the knowledge. And so this was the time, you know, 70s, and the chemical companies started coming into the Consorzio Agrarias and put the poster on the wall where it was like, if your vine is at this stage, spray this. If your vine is at that stage, spray that. And, you know, the reality is that 80% of the stuff they were telling them to spray for was never an issue. And the other 20% was an issue maybe one out of five years. Still now, to this day, we only have one pest that ever causes a problem. And that's usually when we have a milder winter. It's a light brown apple moth. When the winter, when it doesn't freeze and it doesn't snow it can become more of a problem. But we're really fortunate we don't have a lot of pest pressure and disease pressure is pretty simple, downy and powdery mildew, which is quite manageable, uh, organic or not, um, in, in most years. And uh, some years are more difficult, it just means you're in on the tractor more often, but certainly manageable, so. So freezing the soil probably kills the aphids, exactly. like the young yeah, bug. Yeah, the, uh, they're they're not really supposed to be in our area. You know, there's a one that's more northern that handles the cold better, and then there's one from more warm that handles the warm better. And it's only when we have this kind of unusual uh, winter that we get a bigger pressure. Um, I mean, also how we farm affects it very much. If you have too much shading and density and humidity in your canopy, you're giving a better place for them to make their nest in the bunch. And if you eliminate all grass between your rows, uh, you eliminate habitation for the predators and it's all related. Ironically, um, we tried in Panzano the sexual confusion. Um, I for... tried that most of my adolescence. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we tried it, uh, and Monte Bernardi, uh, well, we, I should say, Panzano as a whole, we monitor pests and diseases together. We're extremely advanced in the way we work together as a union, and and uh, we can talk about the, the, the label and, and how we're trying to promote ourselves, trying to bring out that kind of Panzano union idea on our labels. But uh, when we were monitoring this pest at Monte Bernardi, we could never find it basically, or one egg or something like that. Then we did the sexual confusion and we had like 30 eggs in that year. So it actually caused more of a problem than uh, it, it helped. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, Monte Bernardi's fortunate we're surrounded by our own oak forest. And uh, we also have always had grass swords and, and a lot of vegetation breaks. So I think our pressure has been a lot less than some of the main, the, the Concodoro area that has less of that. So. so you're saying when there's monoculture of just vines, you have more problems. Yeah. And that I saw 
and to the extreme in Australia. I mean, when you had blocks of 30 hectares and there's not a tree or a shrubs or grass, I mean, where's the bird going to make its home? <laughs> it's going to make it in the vine. So, uh, so you have to net and, you know, and all that, the disease pressure, uh, was so much higher in Australia, even though you were farming in areas that had no rainfall and very little humidity often, not all, all cases, but, you know, uh, the spores of these diseases splash up onto the to leaves and, and actually can cause more disease pressure. If you if you have grass, it's, it it doesn't happen as much. So, but uh, those are different uh, circumstances also to grow in. So, and you were one of the first to kind of do biodynamic farming in Panzano. What was that like? Yeah, I think Rompola had just started roughly around the same time as us. I I think I tried to get more involved with uh, the people, uh, farmers that were doing it, but it was a little bit too fanatical for me. I, I really shy away from the fanatical side of things. Uh, also, when I was in Boulder, it's like you either a deadhead or you couldn't be like a, ha you couldn't like the dead unless you were like at 300 tapes, you know, of shows or something like that. And I kind of felt the same feeling with biodynamics in Italy. Like I wanted to use a quad to spray the preparations. I stirred with a dynamizer and, and I was, you know, kept, people kept telling me I was doing, you know, it wasn't the right thing. It wasn't the right, bi it wasn't biodynamics kind of thing. So I just kind of kept doing it on my own and, and, uh, and started to actually practice it and through practicing it, I came to a different understanding of biodynamics. I now explain it as a collection of old farming practices that had been around Central Europe for hundreds and hundreds of years that Steiner recollected or collected and uh, started teaching again. And Steiner was not a farmer. And so I think he gave kind of his more philosophical explanation of these practices. And I, being kind of interested in scientific sides of things often kind of looked more deeply into biodynamics and tried to find a microbiological explanation for all these things that I was doing. And when you have that explanation, it frees you. You can use it more often. You can uh, apply it uh, different ways and you're not so tied up. You know, like if I only pick my grapes on fruit and flower days, I think I would be picking like four days out of every two weeks. You know, it's so impractical. No farmer of the you know send, you know the old generation would have ever considered stopping for for such a thing and that i kind of use that as a check in a way for me as i feel like old farming practices are just great tried practices and and have been uh, learned and and passed on for reasons so that's very important uh, kind of gut check for me always when I'm thinking about something and trying to figure out why it works. And so biodynamics from a microbiological point of view has great explanation for everything that we do, like 500, the manure that you put into the cow horn, we bury it for eight months. And, you know, we're, the reason we put it in the cow horn is because it's just a perfect vessel for turning into compost. You know, if you think, if you do a compost in your garden, you have to turn it and monitor the moisture levels. Well, putting it in a cow horn, which is a porous vessel that allows moisture and gases to enter and escape, it's it's a perfect way of, of composting it and forgetting about it, essentially. And then you take that compost out and you put it into a large quantity of water and you stir it for an hour. And, and Steiner explains that it's being energized by like the forces of the moons and the stars and 
uh, it sounds like magic dust essentially, but we don't need a lot of it because we're not really interested in the compost itself. We're interested in what we're getting from it. We're extracting minerals and nutrients from the compost and building a beneficial population of fungi and bacteria in that water. And we need to stir it to hyper-oxygenate the water so we can feed that beneficial aerobic population because otherwise the natural oxygen in the water is too little and they'll consume it and then the tea will go anaerobic and then you can throw it out it's like a bad compost in your garden so that's why you need to dynamize it that's why you exactly. need to make the water flow. need to give it oxygen because it's just like the canting wine exactly yeah and you could probably you know you could just stick a bubbler in it and and force the oxygen in there and you wouldn't have to stir it like that but there's something extremely satisfying about diamondizing it uh, it's like a rushing water or a river you know you, you see the oxygen being incorporated into the water and it's just it just seems right i guess uh-huh. when i've seen one in particular and i don't know what other ones look like but it actually had the shape of kind of like a laid out venus of willendorf like it looked like women's thighs yeah to yeah, me yeah. like it had a yeah. like there's a sort of fertility yeah homage yeah, absolutely in a way. and i think it comes from like old indian farming that uh the English farmer, uh, agricultural guy, um, Howard, Sir Howard, kind of brought to England. They used that system of flowing water to build the fung- the bacteria to break down manure, or, or you know, uh, it was basically their septic system because they were so densely populated. And by stirring it, and they were building that population to break down all the the different uh, waste and and turn it into usable water again for the for the gardens and things like that for growing. One of the other emphasis seems to be putting oxygen and moisture into the soil or keeping it there. Yeah, there's so many reasons why you want to put something like that 500, you know, you put it out there after you've made it into this great composted aerobic tea and you're building, I call it the catalyst for the basic uh, life in the soil. You're giving them food and they're building their population from the ground floor, let's say. And that's moving the soil more. It's aerating it. It's turning dry material that you've left on the surface, like uh, slashed grass or cover crop and turning it into something your vine can actually use. And and then you 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 know you get the more air and and you get such a increased um, life uh, of you know, microbes and bacteria and anthropods and earthworms and things like that. So, and just by doing that, you're changing the pH in a more healthy direction naturally, and it makes more of those minerals and nutrients available to your vine. So it's it's quite a amazing thing that was kind of figured out through trial and error when they didn't know, you know, I'm sure that putting more compost in the farmer figured out that it would smell more um, volatile and they, and they would see the result wasn't beneficial. So they're like, Oh no, we need more. And it smelled like who knows vinegar or or something. And so it's, to me, it's uh, amazing how uh, they took things that were available in the time of the year where things, you know, different problems were there and they tried through trial and error of fermentations or steeping or, or, or the different things you can do, um, burying them and things like that, and found things that uh, really uh, uh, had uses that were very beneficial, like a dandelion tea and chamomile tea and stinging nettle tea. And, so. and what are those benefits? Well, we use dandelion tea, for example. We take at the time where our vineyards, you can only see dandelions on uh, all over the the vineyards we take it and this i only do it 
after a year of uh, disease pressure, because this is about rebalancing the beneficial fungi and bacteria on our wood and our new buds. I don't do it every year just to do it. I think that's really important too. So after a year like 2005, when we had quite a bit of mold, like everyone else, uh, we took the dandelion and we steeped it in water and and made a concentrate. And then we, we diatomized it again and we built a beneficial population of fungi and bacteria. And we drenched the, the wood in the new shoots uh, right when the dandelion was in an abundance. So that's, you know, they all have different benefits. Chamomiles uh, for hail damage or heat stress, stinging nettle for pests or, and, and reducing of copper usage for disease pressure. So all different possibilities that you can uh, and how do you think that reads in a final wine as you were talking about groceries you were saying you thought you preferred the taste of the biodynamic groceries how do you think the taste of a biodynamic wine if it's done well if the practices are followed how does that differ from a conventional wine that's that's a great question you know it's it's hard to uh you know people always say you can't measure biodynamics like the effect in the vineyard you know we did a three-year trial and with different blocks and you know i kind of feel like it's like saying i smoke cigarettes for three years and i'm you know i'm not dying right i'm not dead yeah yeah (laughs) it's uh, you know it takes a long time and it's very hard to measure i can only tell you that i feel like there are people who will be more in tune to it and people who will be less in tune to it, you know, and I've had great wines that weren't farmed biodynamically or even organically. And I, I wouldn't say that it, every wine has to be, but as someone who had no agricultural background, for me, it was the most amazing and important decision I made was to start biodynamics at Monte Bernardi because I really feel much more in tune uh, what we're doing in the vineyard and and you think being out there more provides better vineyard work being out there but also the kind of interrelationships between things around you and the importance of vegetation breaks and grass swords and 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 the different uh, tease that and their benefits, understanding the, they, you just start to understand the balances and the lack of balances, you know, and I could go on and on about how many things uh, have caused imbalances, but, you know, it, you have to also know how to bring them back in balance sometimes. And, and that's what I learned from biodynamics. And so for me, it's very important. I wouldn't, I don't want to say that there are certain characteristics that you get from biodynamic wines, except one thing I noticed is what I learned from the previous owner is that he would always pick his grapes when the berry would easily come off the rackus. And and I did that for the two years or so. And then I realized that uh, maybe three or f- three years, let's say, as we farm biodynamically, we weren't getting that anymore. They weren't you could not pull them off, even though every indication was ten- saying to me, these are ripe. So in, I think it was 2006, I don't feel the wine really suffered, but uh, I felt I waited too long and I never got that aspect. It never happened. And, uh, and I probably would have had to wait another two weeks. And so I feel like there's uh, something being said there, like the durability, the grapes own um, qualities are, are higher and something, something, it's a resistance to decay essentially is it was improved and it wasn't shutting down as early in a sense and and detaching its its berry in a sense these cellular attachment to the rachis or something so so i'll just throw off 
some of my own experience with the taste of biodynamic wines. Yeah. Like if I compare Domaine Lefleve pre-biodynamics to post-biodynamics and like 97, 98 is kind of the change year for them, you know, for the whole thing. That's just one example. But what I find in the, the biodynamic wine is that a lot of the non-fruit characteristics are forward at a younger age. So the saline, the mineral, what I almost might refer to as a little bit of an oxidative quality in the way that the fruit reads, that it's giving you more. Like sometimes I used to say, with a biodynamic wine, I get a capital A, but I also get a lowercase a, followed by a lowercase b, and a capital B. Instead of just all capitals all, all the way across, I got some of those finer notes, and I got them at a younger age. And then so, sometimes I think now that the wine market drinks wines within the first 10 years or five years, having some of those, as you might say, grape characters, like skin, mineral, saline stuff that you might read off the skins earlier is a way for us to find the complexity that we might have associated with an older wine at an earlier time when we're actually drinking it. Because not a lot of people are holding down the bottles. So that's just my read, which that's you're free to like shoot down. No, no, I really like that that uh, comparison, that thought process. Um, I don't think that I have an exposure to wine that you do anymore that I wish I did because I'm living in Italy and uh, I've been more poor than I ever have been in my life. <laughs> and and it's just been more recently that I've been buying wines again uh, with two girls. And my wife and I have uh, finally started buying and s- started to recreate a cellar, I guess. You're but, saying that you have two children. Yeah, I have two girls and, uh, and uh, wonderful girls. And uh, I, yeah, we were pretty strapped for a while. We're still pretty strapped but um we can we can start to finally start uh collecting wines and so every time i come to the states um in new york at chamber street or i'm in byright in california or uh, you know all my there's so many favorite places in boston and everywhere i go i i often will ask for recommendations from these buyers that i respect so much and and i start i bring them home i bring 12 bottles 18 bottles back with me and we're slowly collecting uh so i don't know if i can give you the such a great overview as you did so do you think that that sacrifices their ageability because you're seeing them sooner i think that's an open question yeah and i think certain producers are perhaps dealing with that more forcefully than others like in other words they're being affected by it more yeah and I think we're still kind of in early days I'm, on that. I, I definitely think about that aspect a lot. And there was, but for me at Montebernardi, there was a there was a period of about three years where I was playing with maybe too low sulfur. Right, and that's another huge and, factor yeah. in that game. And I know? kind of attributed it to that. Like I'm talking about under ten free and oh, like twenty five total, thirty thirty total. And you know, I I was telling myself that I could get away with it because I would taste the wine over five, seven days, uh, you know, in a, in a glass even, and it would just, just keep on going and looked fantastic. And so I tried to push that envelope and go lower and lower, but I've gone a bit higher than that because I did see a little bit of that, but, you know, I would be curious if it's more the the kind of what what you're describing and and or a combination. Sometimes probably. people say when they move to biodynamics that they get more reductive wines. Does that happen to you? 
I definitely had a, some more reduction issues, but I don't know if it's because of biodynamics, but because I also moved to large casks and initially I would ferment in them, do malolactic and age in them. And I was getting such a strong reduction in the Sangiovese that was hard to get rid of. Um, so I moved back to smaller barrels for malolactic, only used barrels. And that seems to have taken care of most of it. I think, you know, as you grow, you, you know, I, you never want to make compromises, but I think when you have much more production, we might have maybe, instead of giving more aeration right after malactic, we might have given a little less because you're a little bit, you, you, you subconsciously feel like there's a lot more work ahead of you and you might not have, uh, you might not give as much. So we've been really focusing on that a lot. I think aeration early for us is important uh, than very little. We, in the total life of the wine, we probably moved the wine three times, but probably two times in the beginning and then one at the end. And then the other issue is we moved to dime corks, the, the conglomerate corks, which I love. Uh, they give me consistency. I've never, never have tainted bottles, but they tend to, re, they tend to be more reductive. And, you know, wines that I could have gone to bottle with a normal cork and I wouldn't have worried about reduction became more reductive. And in particular, a certain vintage of Retromarcha and a, ro a one vintage of Rosé. Uh, so I, I attribute it to that, but it's it's possible it's a combination again. So so let's talk about the different vessels because you started with what was a fair amount of one-year-old barrique in the cellar, and yeah. now you use for different wines yeah. some combination or some version of steel, concrete, 3,000-liter yeah. stockinger, wood, and smaller wood. What's the difference between all of those things? Well, it's really my my ideal doesn't always match up with what we can afford to do. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to move to large oak from day one, essentially. Um, but the first year we just didn't buy any barrels because we inherited all this new oak and they were all barrique. And then my second year, I bought my first large cask from Stockinger. And then two years later, I bought another two. Uh, and then wanted to buy cement tanks for quite quite some years but we couldn't afford to buy them and you know i kind of look at cement as just uh something that's uh gives a nice evolution to the wine but maybe not as oxidative as oak yeah. i'm a huge supporter of cement. yeah i love cement and i know we use a non-lined uh, known blows but uh for we just couldn't afford them for a while so we finally got some and we probably you know arguably couldn't afford them but uh you know something i really wanted because the reservas i often would bottle too early because i had to get the next vintage in and i i didn't see the point of putting them into stainless steel I didn't feel like the wine would evolve any different than putting it into bottle. So, um, now, do you feel differently now? I do actually. Yeah, because I, I mean, I yeah, I'm, I was surprised. I learned from a vintage of Retro Marcha. We ne we always used to bottle it all at once, and you know, because I wanted everyone to experience the same bottle of Retro Marcha essentially. But you know, for economic reasons and also for just practicality, we we in the 2011 vintage we bottled it in two bottlings. Uh, one was in January, and the, the second bottling was in July. And when I bottled the July, maybe two months later, I expected to like the January much better. But in reality, I liked the July bottling much better. So uh, it kind of broke down one of these um, preconceived notions I had that the wine that doesn't really evolve that much in stainless steel because it's so inert. Uh, 
I still think it's probably the dissolved oxygen in the wine that we put in. You know, we're not, we don't add a lot of sulfur. So it's probably just the natural oxygen in there and the wine evolving. And uh, what is the difference when you taste it? The July to the uh, January, what was, what the, was one the taste The July like? was just so much more open and, and ready. And the, the January was still quite uh, reserved. And, you know, I also felt like you're, you needed to give more bottle time. And so I would try to anticipate it and bottle earlier. But after that experience, I start, I'm starting to think more that we can, we should uh, put the wine in concrete or stainless. It's better to give it more months in, in that and one of those vessels than in bottle because the wine will actually benefit more from it. So uh, that was a really important lesson to me too, I think, to, you know, retro marches should, should be really enjoyable when it, when it hits the shelves, you know, that's. Cause you're talking about a, a lower price Chianti Classico yeah. that you make from yeah. Panzano grapes. Exactly, 75% of our production is coming from four to 12 year old vineyards. And, and, you know, we age it like a reserva because of where we grow it. Uh, it, because we're in a acidic, tannic, quite austere area for Sangiovese. And I find the only way to bring out that kind of uh, um, approachability and drinkability is to age it in larger mixed or uh, sm small to large barrels for a longer time. And so I've, I kind of understood or I moved in that direction probably around 2008 retro march because I was putting maybe 2009 they were just taking over a year in the bottle to become approachable they were so uh, reserved and steely and you know 95% of them were already drunk you know by the time they started seeing actually it would be really fun to do a vertical of retro march because they, they all look unbelievably good and but a lot of them were drunk way way before then they should have been so one of the things that's interesting with you is that you have different soil types on the estate that you have, which has expanded over time, but you have different soil types that are pretty distinct. And then you group up different bottlings come from those different soil types in some sense. So what are those different soil types and what is grown where? That, that's right. Um, we're really lucky. We're kind of on, I call it a tongue like Lange. It looks like a tongue. So we have almost 360 degrees of exposure. The only thing we don't have is north. And it's just, uh, it seems to be, it, well, it's surrounded by the major river, the area of Pesa. It, it, it's kind of circles Monte Bernardi. And, and I think that brought together three distinct soil types. Uh, we have our classic, the purple-brown shale galastro, which can be other colors in other parts of Chianti Classico, like more grayish-brown uh, in Rada, for example. And then we have the sandstone Pietroforte with the quartz veining, which I think we're the only ones in Panzano that has, which goes right through Monte Bernardi all the way down to the river. And then we have a little bit of Albarese, the limestone, uh, which actually the vineyards directly above us that we rent have more of than we do at Monte Bernardi. So, and the differences are really the purple brown uh, shale, you get more absorption of heat and radiation of heat, uh, not very much reflection. And whereas in the sandstone and the Albarese, you get more reflection. And I just, you get a little bit more darker berry fruit, a little bit more. Uh, richness in a sense and in, in the fruit spectrum but you also get 
especially in the sandstone, you get more minerality. And, and I think the vine produces more tannins to protect itself against burning with that extra reflection. So you get more of a tannin structure that needs, needs more time. And that's why we often release our Sayeta, the single vineyard from the sandstone, a year later than the Montevanardi, even though they're picked on the same day and they're bottled on the same day. So, because you make a wine called Montebernardi yeah, at Reserva. the same time that there's an estate that yeah, you own called Montebernardi. That's right. Montebernardi Reserva comes from the purple brown shill and it has 5% Caniola in it because I think it emphasizes that softness of Sangiovese from that area. Whereas the Sayeta has Caniolo, Melvisi, and Trebbiano in the vineyard because it's a classic old vineyard, but we put that into the rose that we make. And because I want to emphasize that kind of more minerally driven Sangiovese of the Sayeta stone, the Pietroforte. So, yeah. It's, um, but you said the sandstone has changed over time that you've done biodynamics. Yeah. I, I remember probably three years after we started, maybe four, that I was on the tractor turning the soils and I used to look back and I would see only rocks like Chateau Neuf de Pop, but more angular stones, not the river stones. And you literally could not see anything but stones. And three or four years after farming, uh, it, I remember looking back and thinking that it was like someone removed 30, 40% of our stones, literally. And I was like, where are all the stones gone in a sense? And, and it took me a second to figure out that, uh, you know, it was because our soil structure changed from something that was like sand, pure sand, you could, uh, to what looked like loam, you know, much more organic filled, rich. So now you can't separate the rocks from the soil anymore. I kind of say, yeah, I had started with chocolate chips and sugar and we added the egg yolk. You can't separate them anymore. So that's, uh, I think uh, we also saw a much better balance in the vineyard. We didn't have to shoot position anymore. We didn't have to leaf pluck. We just, uh, you know, we saw just a, a wonderful balance uh, come with that change in soil also as well. And what about the limestone soil? Limestone, I wish I had more of it. I really love the limestone, Albarese. We don't have so much of it, but uh, I think it has similar, it's kind of like maybe a hybrid of the two in a sense. It's kind of, it's got that reflective nature, but it's it's clay, or, well, it's limestone based and it just gives yeah, a mixture of generosity and minerality, I think that is really interesting. It's, I, I don't have enough of it to make a single blend or single vineyard selection of it yet. So hope maybe one day. <laughs> and you mentioned finding Bonsi's La Trami Chianti Classico, a wine of inspiration. Are there farming techniques that you've taken from how she farms that have translated into your own work? I, she has been hugely influential to me. I, I used to visit her every year. I think, you know, it was one of the wines along with Montevertini's Montevertini uh, that I really looked as benchmarks of expression of great Sangiovese from their respective areas. And, you know, the vineyard, I probably took less from her directly because she was doing Alberello and, and really tight spacing. And I kind of didn't agree with tight spacing. I feel like tight spacing concentrates the compaction, increases the humidity because it's like you're having more people in a room. You can just feel the difference. Also, I was working the vineyards uh, more in the early years than now I, I tend to do I tend not to be able to do as much vineyard work as I like um, but I didn't want to work the vineyards at my knees either but I think what I got from her 
uh, well, she's extremely open and generous with her knowledge, and she also is always wants to learn herself, is that, you know, the best expressions are, you know, longer aging and larger oak and and her passion for the less traditional varieties like uh, Maumala and Foliatonda and, and, and things uh, that are largely forgotten. Her father was an extremely important person in, in Chianti Classico viticulture. And, and uh, I think she brought a lot of that to her property and, and this passion and knowledge. And, and uh, I've certainly have learned in a lot from her in, in a sense of where my palate wanted to take Montepinardi, but maybe less so from actual uh, pure experience knowledge. One of the things that's interesting is that you do use that large Stockinger wood. Stockinger is an Austrian cooperage. Why that choice, and is that a common choice in Tuscany? It certainly wasn't a common choice uh, when I chose it, and I was influenced by the two first importers we worked with, or agent importer, Mark de Grazia, and uh, an importer that we still work with today in England, uh, Roy Richards. I really uh, knew I wanted to start buying larger casks, but I didn't know who to buy. So I asked both Mark de Grazia and Roy Richards, and they both independently told me Franz Stockinger was the barrel that I wanted. So I went up with my wife, Claudia, uh, there, and we visited them for a weekend, and uh, we saw their their whole facility and it was like three people, and uh, we got to see where they aged the wood, and they had like three football fields of, of wood, and 75% of the wood was black, and 25% was raw and fresh. And it's very important because large casks, you have to open air, age the wood for five years minimum before you can make a barrel out of it and uh, barrique three years uh, usually. And so it was clear that he was doing it right. Whereas I visited a neighbor and it was the, the ratio was the opposite. It was like 25% black and 75% uh, uh, relatively new wood, so suggested that they were using other techniques to prepare the wood, like steam or vapor or heat or something. So, so uh, another reason I bought from him is because I knew I would get uh, what I wanted in in terms of you know. Uh, I, w I didn't want French oak. I, I wanted something less aromatic. I wanted good quality tannins, but less aromatic. And so we chose the Falzig German oak and the Austrian Eeps oak. And uh, still very pleased to this day. I really love those forests. And uh, I think more producers now uh, use Stuckinger in, in Tuscany. I think I actually influenced Giovanna Morganti on her actually buying her own Stuckinger barrels, which is very cool to influence your kind of mentor, but I still think in, they're more common in Northern Italy, but uh, in, in Tuscany, there are some producers, uh, but uh, not, not so many still. So. And it feels like there was also a learning curve with the project where you were sourcing white grapes from Sicily. And how did that come about and what does that project look like and what did you what did you learn from that? Yeah, well, th this was another project that was inspired by our need to grow as a family business. We had grown our vineyards at Monte Bernardi up to 15 hectares, but they weren't all fully producing, but we could do the numbers and we realized we still weren't going to really be where we needed to be. And uh, this is partly because Chianti Classico just doesn't fetch the price that it deserves for the amount of 
grapes you get from a vineyard and and the amount of time and effort that you put into it if you're doing it i think you know in a artisanal way let's say um we we realized we had to grow so we um I racked my brain for like two years to try to figure out how to grow. I didn't want to start making another line at Montevinardi or buying grapes or anything like that because I felt we had the perfect amount of vineyards that we could manage. And uh, and so I came up with the idea of being the first Italian producer uh, to put organic wine into Tetra Packs and bring them to the U.S., one liter Tetra Packs. And the, I, the inspiration was initially ecological the idea that 90 percent of wine is being brought into the u.s and drunk within the first 24 hours of being purchased that seemed very wasteful to send heavy glass uh, around from around the world and, and consume it that quickly but uh, over time i started to realize that um, it was also just uh, a great uh, package that allowed us to keep wine in uh, two solid years and uh, give us two solid years of high quality so more than sufficient for that 90 percent and also um, pr provided amazing economic advantages that allowed us to give much better quality wine than that was possible in glass with cork so for example the package itself costs less than a cork so we're saving glass front label back label the capsule, whole package the, the whole, whole pack. package for the tetra pack and uh, and we transport the wine here in stainless steel insulated containers in a 20-foot container you'd get roughly 12,000 bottles of glass which is 9,000 liters of wine we get 26,000 liters of wine in that 20-foot container. So now the reason we do it in the container is there are very few facilities that package uh, wine in one-liter Tetra Packs, but also from a quality point of view, it seems to better to bring the wine in a container like that than to pre-package it in Italy and bring it and lose some of our advantages of, of the economics of bringing it in bulk. So um, we fill it in St. Catharines, Canada, and we bring it into into the States from there. And uh, it's uh, it's been a wonderful experience, really. Uh, we started uh, with the idea of making Tuscan organic Sangiovese. And the first year was like 90% Chianti Classico Sangiovese and 10% Montecucco. Second vintage was a bit more Chianti because the vintage needed more richness and more approachability. And so I used less Chianti Classico. But the thing I love about that project is I can make kind of my ideal Sangiovese, a delicious everyday Sangiovese that that uh, has that sweet and sour characteristic, no visible oak, um, just as uh, light on his feet and delicious. So we the Grillo was, we felt like we didn't really know if people would accept a white or a red better in a Tetra Pak, to be honest. And so we thought we should probably do a red and a white. And I looked in Tuscany and I just didn't feel like there was anything I wanted to make uh, from a white grape in Tuscany. And I would have loved to make a white from up north, but we really wanted it to be organic. And that was a challenge to find something organic uh, that we could work with. So we went to Sicily and um, I was 
leaning towards more like something like Catarato or Enzolia, because I didn't really know that much about Grillo. But uh, when I found the Grillo, I, I just absolutely loved it. And it comes from a single vineyard in Campo Reale, which is quite high altitude above Alcamo. And uh, I, I just love the of the variety. It's just uh, underrated in, in America. And, and the reality is I feel like when I'm in Sicily and I go to a restaurant, three out of the four tables are drinking Grillo on the, and and less uh, Enzolia, Catarato, or Chardonnay. So, Was there things you noticed about growing Grillo or fermenting Grillo that were kind of revelatory for you? Yeah, and, and, uh, there was a really important thing I learned. We wanted to ferment like the Tuscan Sangiovese natural indigenous uh, uh, yeast, no fining, no filtration for the red, hand-picked. With the Grillo, is a little trickier. Um, we The first year we did half natural yeast and half selected. I was a little bit nervous about, uh, uh, you know, uh, the producer had never done uh, native yeast before. And I'm glad we didn't do 100% because the, the native yeast down there was, uh, the resulting wine was a little bit wet wool and a little bit uh, bready almost. And it really took away from the citrus and the, and the uh, kind of minerality that I enjoyed about the, the Grillo that he had produced in the past. And... And that was a connection that uh, I was looking to make for a long time in my own wines because um, Sayata, especially on the light stones uh, in the hotter years, when especially when I exposed the so stones more in the past, uh, now we try to dampen them and by leaving grass wards or cover crops now. Um, it would get a little bit of this kind of Brett-like characteristic after five years in the bottle, and I could never figure out what was causing it. Now, with that white experience, what I think is happening is the sun exposure on the skins of the berries are is changing the population of the native yeasts on that uh, the surface of the skin, and and maybe the Brett more Brett-like aromas are more resistant to UV light and and that kind of intensity. And so, um, I, and I keep testing that theory and it seems to prove itself over and over and over again. So I still only use native for Monte Bernardi, um, I, but I try to, to dampen the fact. And now that I have a theory of it, it's easier for me to kind of carry out that, that uh, to try and counteract that that uh, experience of uh, the bread-like aromas. So your thought is that the sun is actually changing the yeast on the skins of the grapes. Exactly, yeah. Like the overexposure of the UV light in, in Sicily, which has just an abundance of sunshine, and maybe it's temperature-related some degree too, is changing the population to a, maybe a bread-dominated uh, kind of thing. And what's it like selling a Tetra Pak? Oh, selling a Tetra Pak is... You know, it's been a lot of fun, but you know you get all kinds of reactions. You get that reaction of like old uh, Florida some, you know, who's like sixty-five, and you put him on the table, and he's like, "What the hell did you just put in front of me?" And you know, but the satisfying thing is, in even with a guy like that, at the end of the tasting, he's like, "How do I sell these to my people? This, these wines are amazing. These, these." are just amazing quality and that's the the real the satisf satisfaction is being one of the first to do it and kind of show people that we can give you a better quality wine at a price point because we're saving money in all these different ways and and uh you know 
it, it's very satisfying to be able to give a wine at a at that price point that we could never achieve in glass. Uh, and so it's been a lot of fun, but a lot of hurdles. A lot of took us forever to get restaurants onto it. Now we've got Momofuku, Jordan pouring the red. We've got Blue Ribbon pouring the red and white in Brooklyn, and we've got La Pan Cotidienne for almost two years. They were one of the first to pour the Grillo by the glass nationally, and. But it's taken some time and, and gotten some amazing, funny reactions to them. And, uh, uh, you know, what are those ketchup and mustard and things like that? Uh, very funny kind of reactions, but um, overall extremely satisfying. But uh, yeah, we're now feel like uh, people are slowly more and more accepting and, and understanding the, the reasons why we do it. Uh, so it's been fun. So you took over in 2003. That's when you arrive in Panzano. What are some of the standout vintages for you in terms of learning or wines that were produced between 03 and now? Yeah, 2003 was oh, one of the hottest, driest, and least, probably my least favorite vintage that I've experienced because the nights were hot, which has never happened since, fortunately. Even then, those vintages that we think of like 9 and 11 in 2007, 2009, 2011, we still had the cold nights, which is very important. To me, 2005 was not a great vintage, but it was one of the most important vintages for me because it was very wet uh, in the end. Uh, it rained every week for the last five weeks uh, on and like two days a week, every, every week. And so extreme disease pressure. But what we saw is that the disease came in our vineyards maybe two weeks later than our conventional labors. And so we had mold like everyone else, but I think we lost less crop. And I think we, we brought a better product in the house. So, you know, we hand sorted every single bunch. Uh, we brought the, the baskets in up to the winery and we went through every single bunch and removed mold when we could or throughout the bunch when we couldn't. So I'm um, very proud of that vintage, but it also gave me confidence that biodynamics and organics could be done there even in a tougher year. So in fact, it was probably advantageous. Subsequent to 05, uh, there are probably other vintages. Yeah, 04, you know, 04 was, uh, people think of it as a, uh, at the time at least, they were thinking it wasn't such a special year, but it's, of course, now I think more people realize it's a really special vintage. 2006 um, had uh, more ripeness, but surprisingly strong acidity that kind of kept it in check in a sense and very good vintage. Seven is a little bit on the warmer side. And, you know, whenever I have a vintage like that, I kind of, my personal taste is that it, it's less Panzano, it's less Montebenardi. You know, the, the aromas are more like Castelnuovo or, or, or warmer parts of Chianti Classico, which I still love, but they're not Montebenardi, they're not Panzano. So I tend to like the cooler vintages. In fact, the vintages that we call the golden vintages or the easy vintages, in my opinion, they're the ones that the whole medium level of quality is higher. So the critics like to call them golden vintages, but I often like the more difficult vintages are the vintages that I love, not from an, an only the experience point of view, but I think the wines just are much more interesting and much more enjoyable. So, and you, You've talked about 12 being interesting and in that it was going one way and then ended up another. 
Yeah, 12. That's a vintage that I think the critics were already writing off in August. I remember tweeting back to a famous American critic saying, it's not over yet. And sure enough, it was a very dry, hot growing season until the end of August. And then we got a substantial rain. And where we are, we were really lucky. Normally our veraison starts the first week of August and it did, but like two or three berries per bunch. And then it just stopped. And the vines weren't surprisingly, weren't really heat stressed. Their leaves weren't curling in, like closing like a fan. The the tendrils weren't dying off. Um, but they just stopped their veraison uh, progress. And then we got the rain at the end of August, a really important rain, and then they just took off. They started ripening and we ended up picking that vintage in a classic early to mid-October range, which I can't even think, I think the last time we picked in that period started in October was probably 2005, maybe 2005 maybe 2008, um, but uh, very rare occurrence. And and the wines are unbelievably fresh, lower in alcohol, very pretty, aromatic, and uh, so just wonderful. Uh, and you've just, if anyone was there from anywhere up until end of August, they would be like, oh, this must be like, going to be like a 2003 or 2007. But in our area, definitely not the case. Uh, maybe in warmer areas that were forced to pick earlier because their vines just ripened earlier, their last five weeks of ripening, of course, were much hotter and the vines were more stressed. But um, we had quite a cool down in September and and picking into early October. It's always our advantage being in that center part of Chianti Classico. You've got lower mean temperatures, big drop in, in temperature at night. You get these just very beautiful, aromatic, elegant Chianti Classicos. And I've always really tried to emphasize that uniqueness. And how's 2014 shaping up for you in terms of a harvest that's getting closer? Yeah, 2014, uh, you know, for Europe, I think in general, a lot lot of parts of Europe, apart from Burgundy getting hit by hell again three years in a row, uh, you know, for us, it's been a, one of the more challenging vintages. But again, it's too early to to call it off. It's just way too early. We're just starting Veraison, which, which for me is very promising because the vine started a month early but because of the rain and the and the kind of less favorable weather we actually started raising right in the classic time early august so you know if the weather stabilizes and and turns into a normal vintage it could be a an amazing vintage still so it's really that last five weeks that are so critical for us um when the grapes are making their flavors and aromas and so if you've got the hotter kind of less classic because you're early you're in more in august and and early september you're going to have more plummy rich flavors but lower acidity and 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 kind of different tannins and but if you're in the more classic kind of period for us you're going to have that great freshness and elegance and and kind of cherry and 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 sometimes cranberry even uh when it's really fresh so and you've done some work along with Walter Speller in promoting the idea of vineyard maps and vineyard designations and area regional definitions within the Chianti zone. Yeah. What has that work taken the shape of? Well, that the inspiration for that was, to be frank, the Gran Selezione. Um, when that, I think, 
kind of made some of the smaller producers who were hoping more for a territorial-based initiative, it kind of made us realize that it was just going more in the same direction, which, you know, I'm never questioned the intention so much. Uh, it just, you know, there's a lot of different people to please uh, and with different goals and, and ideas of how they want to sell and, and, and make their wines. And for us, uh, we want to focus on our unique part of Chianti Classico we come from. I think Chianti Classico is one of the great wine regions of, of Italy and the world. And, and we have everything you could ever want in our area, in Rada, Castellina, Gaioli, lots of, of parts of Gaioli. You've got, you know, you can just check it off a list, high altitude, steep slopes, very rocky soils, big drop in temperature at night. I mean, just unbelievable place to grow grapes. And, and Sangiovese is, a, is one of the great grapes. And so I just love the diversity of, of the different areas of Chianti Classico. And I think they each have their own unique attributes that are, that are unique and special to them. So, uh, you know, uh, what Walter and I wanted to do is create a kind of a platform for supporting everyone's efforts to bring forward the discussion of their own region. So we started a website called InsideCantiClassico.com, and the whole point of it is to give the regions, the communes and sub-communes, like Panzano is a sub-commune, it's not actually a commune, it's a sub-commune of Greve, their own platform and they can contribute as much or as little as they want but i think the ultimate goal now uh, is more clear to me and that has to be that we have to kind of emphasize our area in the only, in any way that the consortium will let us and what they've let panzano do because we we've been really good at working to to already promote panzano as a, a unique region of Chianti classico is to have our own logo on the back of our Chianti classico bottles that panzano union logo so that the consumer can turn that bottle around and say uh, this is not just Chianti Classico. This is from Panzano. And to me, that sidesteps the big problem we have as Chianti Classico producers, the difference between Chianti and Chianti Classico. We're never going to win that battle. You can't, you can't, when people call your wine a Chianti, you can correct them and say Chianti Classico, but it's kind of a uphill battle. For me, the better strategy is to focus on Panzano. We're Panzano. We're you know that, and I want and I hope that Lamale will do the same, and um, and uh, Monti and Gaioli and and uh, you know all these wonderful special communes uh, will do the same uh, for for their respective regions. So Grand Selezione is something that's, that has to do with a, a state-grown fruit and certain aging regime. Right. It's you know it's it's not a huge step up from Reserva. You know, it's, I think, a half a degree more alcohol and six months more aging, but it doesn't specify what aging. And, you know, as smaller producers, we're already growing and making and bottling our own wines. And we designate that on our label as Intelgromente Prodotto. And so that designation is already there. Uh, you don't need a ultra-high category to make that distinction, you know, but... Uh, something uh, that 
some producers felt was important, uh, but you know, it's it's hard to argue. I think in this today's wine market, that Chianti Classico needed like a Grand Reserve category. Um, I don't think Reserva was so fashionably hot that they needed another uh, more expensive tier above it. But uh, you know, that's. Uh, uh, I, if, as a small producer, I would be extremely satisfied if they just supported our, our desire to to um, even allow us to put it on our Chianti Classico Reserva, or if you want to make Gran Selezione, Gran Selezione, you can uh, identify yourself and where you're where your vineyards lie. And and as a Panzano producer, I can only put that logo on my back label if the grapes are grown by me, fermented by me, and bottled by me. And, and the vineyards are under our management, so or owned or rented. But uh, so that's integral mente prodotto. So Panzano is making that a requirement as a union already. Is part of the problem that Chianti, as a word, is a bad brand? Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's a tough, uh, it, it's it's an uphill battle to fight against the the stigmatism of that. Uh, uh, image that is really not that l- the negative side is not that long actually in the grand scheme of things in my opinion you know maybe 40 50 years uh, there were great Chianti Classicos I mean there's a reason why Chianti Classico which uh, in the, the area was at back then called Chianti almost 3,000 years ago uh, or was the first designated area as being needed to be protected as a region uh, the first one in the world. That that's quite amazing. Um, but uh, yeah, it's an uphill battle. You know, somewhere like Montalcino, I think, uh, you know, 30 years ago they only had nine producers bottling Montalcino, and so they kind of got to create the image and and the future for them. And they've done a, an amazing job of that. Uh, Chianti Classico has to work against. Uh, uh, the kind of stuff that was exported that uh, wasn't the best, necessarily always the best examples of what can be made there. Because Montalcino, I would argue, is a brand that kind of sells itself. Yeah. Whereas Chianti Classico is the opposite. It's a hard sell. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially at a higher price point. Yeah, yeah. They're a much higher price point, but they sell much easier. Um, they've done a great job of marketing and uh, and and establishing their kind of image um, you know, I think they've grown quite a lot and, and that might be their challenge now is to try to fit all of those producers under that umbrella and the, the, the kind of way that the area's expanded. But, um, but uh, it's very admirable the, the way they've, they've worked that. So your thought is that Panzano is different than Gaioli, than Casanovo Baradanga, than Rada or then Monty and then exactly knowing those differences can help you understand as a consumer what it is you're buying exactly and you know my dream would be that um, people would not only know the differences but start to appreciate and learn those differences like they do in Barolo you know Castiglione Folletto and Saralunga and I mean that that would be the dream would be to get to that point at some point and you know from a quality point of view and what is there, we have it, we have it. We can definitely uh, deliver on it, uh, you know, as as the in the differences and the, the advantages and disadvantages of the different areas, definitely, uh, we have it. Um, uh, so, you know, if certain areas become more f- fashionable and more important, quote unquote, Grand Cruz, then, 
people will turn to the less because they're better values, uh, you know, and, and they're, you know, or they're more approachable earlier or they're, you know, they're, they're more fruit forward or more spicy or, or all different kinds of reasons. But that's what we have to strive for that to, to, to create the want to know those differences. Really, my dream uh, that I've told Claudia, but um, you know, if if I had unlimited resources, I would um, start the Produttore del Chianti Classico and uh, want to try to emphasize those different things that I think are special in each one of those areas because I feel like it's it's, it's like an open field. You could uh, uh, really um, open people's eyes and uh, bring out uh, that incredible. Uh, special qualities of each area and and make people realize you know very distinctly michael schmelzer he's looking for differences and making a difference at monte bernardi in panzano in tuscany thank you very much for being here today thank you levy it was a real pleasure thank you very much michael schmelzer of monte bernardi all drink to that is hosted and produced by myself levy dalton aaron skella has contributed original pieces Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.